All right, guys, shall we start? Also, also, Jenga, these top, like each of these topics are like technically one episode each. So I think in the future, we should probably just be a bit more focused on, on, it's very hard to go deep. I spent the whole day researching all these and it's like still very shallow, I think. So. Hello, Jangan. Yes, hi, I'm Jangan, can you hear us? Yep, I, I, I heard you and chose to ignore you, but yeah. <laughs> Hello, Barbarians, and welcome to the 12th episode of the LLB podcast, Low-Level Barbarians from Asia on Asia with debate and discussion on trending topics with us, myself, Alex, typically your host of EOA, man of the high ground, Dave Chang. How are you, Dave? I can't believe we made it to 12. Like, I, I'm actually kind of surprised. I thought we like max out at like six, <laughs> five or six. And then we whoa, all like... <laughs> whoa, 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 whoa. Well, like you said, as long as we're having fun, but we were a little bit angry today, but we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. <laughs> and uh, Jangan, the information super connector, how are you connecting Jangan? I'm good. We bought uh, too much furniture today and people are sending furniture. It's lots of noise, but uh, but it's good to, to get people uh, to, to do some actual work. Um, yeah. So physical labor is actual work. The physical other work labor. And work. We, we, we have an intern from Sweden who used to work for the Klarna and uh, and his main contribution today is teaching us how to pronounce the proper names of all this IKEA furniture that we bought. Oh, can you send for me Valo like a recording of that? I've always wondered. <laughs> what? It's called Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> uh, we, 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 we basically learned how to pronounce it, uh, all the names. And, um, the only thing we can remember is Billy. <laughs> yeah, Billy's easy. I got that one. Yeah, yeah. I got that one. Too, Billy. Yeah. All right, guys. Um. I guess we'll kick off the first topic, uh, which I guess we'll continue our discussion from last week on maybe in a different narrative on Ukraine and the Russia crisis, right? So Jagan wanted to talk about the ramifications. Uh, I would start, like to start the point where I was reading a Financial Times article called the end, of the, the end of an Era, IKEA, Russia's Middle Class and the New Cold War. And that article was quite interesting in respect that they basically said what we were discussing last week, where, you know, Western sanctions, the, the losers are going to end up being the Russian people, which is quite clear at this point. You know, everything unfolded as we discussed. Uh, sanctions ramped up, economic hit hard, the rubles down. Um, and now, in a sense, Russia's getting canceled. Every single Western brand is pulling out of Russia that we know of, from you know, Adidas, McDonald's, Ikea, right? Uh, but what this article was positing is that possibly, you know, this either will stir people to, you know, nationalistic pride and, you know, people will step up and fill in this void and Russia diverges or the other side is what we talked about, you know, Russian people get hit hard and people maybe want to stand up against to what they don't, you know, agree with the actions in Ukraine and they want, will try to quote unquote fight the machine, which uh, I don't know, I don't know how that would happen, but you know, this article discusses that two, these are two potential different paths. Um, so I don't know, what, what do you guys think are the potential ramifications economically, socially, otherwise for Ukraine, uh, Jankan, I don't know. What do you think? For Ukraine, uh, it's, it's bad. I mean, the country's wrecked. So, uh, I, I spent some time in Ukraine back in 2015. So in terms of infrastructure, the country was, was already quite backward. Um, was 2015. Um, I, I basically drove from, from the Moldovan border to, to Odessa 
and on the road, um, I remember like the, you had lots of science saying that, Hey, finally have 3G. That was 2015. Wow. So it was, uh, and, and, and the funny thing is that, uh, I mean, I did that trip, um, before I was in, um, I think three former Soviet republics and only Ukraine, you see lots of Lada cars, it's like the old Russian cars, you basically barely mm -hmm. fit into one person, let alone two and usually they fit four. So, um, so I think that. I, I think the country became what it, it is it, it it was before the war for a reason, but uh, but but this war is definitely sending it backwards, and uh, which is, which is quite sad. Um, uh, and um, I think if the if this sort of a geopolitical game between America and Russia continues to play on, I don't see any way out for Ukraine to be peaceful and prosperous. Because remember that they had that security guarantee in 1994. That's all Ukraine gave up is nuclear weapons. Yeah. Mm. That's from the U Ukrainian perspective. Then what do you think about how does Russia end up out of this? You know, what, what are the two potential or what outcome do you think is more likely, you know, people rising up against the Russian government, or is it more likely that, you know, all the, this, does Russia have the potential for local brands, you know, since ever since, you know, the end of the cold war and this liberalization and, you know, all these Western brands coming in, uh, Russian brands also have come up domestically. Do you mm -hmm. think they could come in and fill this kind of void that's missing? Or do we end up with people just demanding that they want their old way life back? Or I don't know. What do you think? Uh, Dev, you have anything on that point? Uh, no, I mean, I was just thinking like, uh, I guess the, before we get to that point is like the first part about like what's most likely to happen in Ukraine. And I, I mean, it's always hard, I guess, to like make any sort of like, uh, projections when it comes to these sorts of environments, because anything could potentially happen and you never know. But I mean, I mean, if you, if you, if you look at history and when you, if you use history as a guide, uh, for this, right. And you compare this to like, maybe let's say like the, the Chechenian conflict uh, back in the late 90s, early aughts. So the Chechenian, I think the, I'm looking at it now, like the actual combat phase, uh, lasted from basically like nine months and five days from like 1999, uh, of August and to like May of 2000. Right. But then what followed after that was basically like you had nine years of like this really brutal grinding insurgency. So, I mean, <laughs> I think that's most likely like, kind of maybe their best case scenario at this point for like what happens. Maybe like there will be, uh, you know, hopefully a, an official end to like the armed conflict or like the major uh, conflict stage of, of this of this war. And then they'll most likely settle in if we look at history as a guide into sort of like probably the situation that the U.S. had in Iraq where we were there for like 10, 15 years fighting like a local insurgency. and. It's just, it's very bleak, I think, for, for everyone in, involved. I did hear, I did hear there was like an interesting, um, and I, I wish we had someone that was a bit more, uh, informed on the topic, but I did hear that Russia recently actually changed their demands for the Ukrainian government. So the, so a couple of weeks ago, I think like two weeks ago, like here you go, they had like proposed, they had sent over like their terms of surrender essentially, right. And to Ukrainian government. And so one of them was obviously, um, you know, referendum on not joining any like, uh, EU blocks. So like no NATO, uh, no EU. Another one was, um, what was it? I believe it was, they have to recognize, uh, certain regions like Crimea, uh, Crimea, 
Crimea and the Donbass. And then the third term was the complete uh, demilitarization of Ukraine, which I think at the time uh, was obviously a non-starter for Ukraine. But recent report, I read one this morning that said that they had changed that to say no offensive weapons as opposed to complete demilitarization. Mm. So it seems like the Russians um, are also potentially starting to look for, and if you believe reports, right, uh, are also looking for some sort of off-ramp to this conflict. I don't think they they were quite ready for how long and how how you know grinding it is, and also for the economic sanctions that they're currently going through. But I mean, either way, however this pans out, I think it's going to be bad for everyone. I've, I know. I have a feeling that uh, that 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 Putin can't afford for the war to drag on for a long time, and especially with the with the, with the intensity that 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 it is today, because so because because face it, I mean, um, I think he uses the Korean soldiers, right? I mean, this this is the most important force in Russia that is loyal to him, and that's that, that's basically his foundational power, and he can crack down things. And if if um if if these soldiers which are loyal to him get um, sort of um, ground or whatever unnecessarily in Ukraine and he will be facing lots of uh, domestic challenges and I mean if you look at historically in Russia or in other countries whenever they whenever you invest um, too many soldiers that are loyal to you outside I mean even with Napoleon right and uh, and they they failed to control what was happening in your country then your enemies will seize the opportunity the revolutionaries will seize the opportunity um, so one thing I think maybe not politically correct to say that is that I don't, I don't, I don't trust the people. I think people can be mobilized, people can be manipulated, but I don't think that um, that people can organize themselves to become a proper political force. So there's always someone who, I mean, whichever capacity leads people into some political movement. And uh, I do think that Putin has enemies in Russia, and uh, if he consumes mm. a lot of his resources in Ukraine. Um, and I think his rule in Russia will probably be dangerous. So, so that, that's my take. Well, I mean, look, I want to talk about, because do you see the report that uh, Putin had yeah. asked China for military, like he had officially asked for military support? Like, yeah. I want to, I want to talk about that. Like, what do you guys, what do you guys think about that? Because that to me seems, like, I mean, there's two ways to look at it, right? One is like, he actually needs the help. And two is like, it's a political maneuver to force the CCP to choose yeah, the side, right? I'm, I'm just curious, like, what you guys think about this? Well, it's the same thing with U.S. Ukraine asking the West or U.S. for help. It's the same positioning, right? They, they, I don't think any side could really afford to step in unless you really go for World War Three, right? So, it's it's just I think both sides are using the same tactics. Like, who who does Putin could turn to? Other, I mean, there's very few people, right? Other than maybe I don't know North Korea or something, but like like the it's it's the same thing, I think. And I think both sides just can't really afford it, so. I think um, unless uh, everyone's really ready to stand by it, you know, and actually fight each other over this. I I don't think China has the military power to support Russia. I mean, lots of the lots of the equipment in China is still Russian made. So yeah. um I don't think that at that stage that they can actually give Russia lots of aid of uh, sort of advanced military equipment. Um but 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 if I look at how this war has progressed, uh, one thing one thing which is obvious is that uh, the Russian army clearly doesn't have money. I mean, just just look at how mm. many missiles that they're firing every day. It's, it's it's it's. I mean, compared to what the US would have be, have done in other countries, it's just peanuts, right? I mean, first they had a hundred fifty six missiles or something. They used that mm. in the army already, so which means that, um, I mean, 
if if you really really want to end this war um uh, swiftly and you 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 would bombard um your enemies air bases whatever whatever out of shape and before you send your ground forces that's what us has been doing since the gulf war but um yeah, but, but russia didn't true. do that and and i think the key reason is that they don't have enough money mm. so so yeah so 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 I, so I, I've been looking at what the Chinese government has been doing in the last few weeks. Uh, initially, this refused to call it a war. Uh, I think I, I, th I think they called the Russian on term of like the military operation, and uh, they, they're, they're basically reiterating some principles of uh, respecting sovereignty, territorial integrity, and uh, sort of uh, uh, respect Russia's uh, legitimate security concerns, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, so, so basically. If you look at every every person foreign minister foreign affairs in Beijing, they all, they all saying the same thing, and then, and gradually you see a, a change of tone, right? I mean, now they start they started to call it a war, uh, but I think strategically, um, they they I don't think they will choose sides openly, but uh, but strategically they will probably want Russia to be at the forefront of this uh, geopolitical tussle. And, uh, and yeah. for, for the same reason that the, that that the U.S. would want Ukraine to be consuming Russia's resources. Hmm. Dave, what was your take on it? Do you think, or your initial reaction? I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's. Uh, I think they've really put uh, China in a hard spot. So I read, I read somewhere that essentially they had given China the heads up that they were going to do this, right? And then China had like, I. The, the the impression that I got from the article, I wish I could think of the name right now, was that China was like kind of a little bit surprised and they didn't think that they were actually going to go through with this invasion. I mean, because if you think about it, for the CCP, it's kind of like a lose-lose, right? So like on one hand, you know, Russia and the CCP share like a huge land border and they're like one of the only powerful nations that I think CCP has like a decent relationship with at this point. So they can't really afford to alienate yeah. uh, the, the the Putin regime, but on on the other hand, right? I think the the Western reaction to this has been so overwhelmingly negative, and it's actually you know in many ways kind of gotten the Europeans to kind of get their act together. You know, they've sort of been mm. lazed for the last thirty years, and then they're all of a sudden they're like, oh, maybe we should actually like you know. Start spending some money on our defense budgets and start caring about like energy yeah. independence. And then so I think it's kind of galvanized it. So I think they also can't come out as like really explicitly pro Russian because then they kind of get dragged down into the same, um, you know, I don't want to say pariah state, but you know, sort of like the same uh, geopolitical positioning as the, as the Russians. And they're, you know, quite frankly, their, their global reputation is already terrible right i've like read recently that global approval of like the chinese is like at an all-time low like basically across the board like their disapproval ratings are like in the 70 to 80 percent uh a lot of that's covid related but i don't you know I, I think if they're trying to establish themselves as sort of like a new pole in the global hegemon they can't really afford at this point to be so deeply unpopular among so many countries and if i'm being honest right you know like I think the one thing that we've seen is like the global financial system is still very much underpinned by the U.S. system, right? I mean, just look at look at how how brutal the sanctions have been and the impacts having on Russia and the Chinese. I don't think you know are necessarily ready 
to they don't they don't have the infrastructure set up to like sort of like combat this yet. So I think they the Russians have put them in a hard spot. But that's think, a good point. I think one thing I would um um so 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 I've seen lots of news reports. I mean, the thing about war situation is that uh, that, that lots of things happening and uh, there's lots of news. Um, many of them are fake, coming from both sides or multiple sides. So it's um, it's, it's it's always very hard to get uh, an accurate reading about what's going on. I mean, Alex, you asked mm -hmm. about what's happening in Russia, what do people think? The, the, the truth is we don't know. And uh, even the information yeah. you get from so people interviewing people on the ground, it might be information on warfare. I mean, practiced by the yeah. one side or the other That's sides. True. So we don't know. But but I think one thing I would, I mean, because I... I, I've um, I've worked with the uh, parts of the government in China before on sort of uh, specific projects on on, on technology, but uh, but but from my understanding about them is that uh, is that anything that's major that 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 reaches the Politburo level, um, so they would would have had all the scenarios sort of laid out before decision making. Mm -hmm. So so I wouldn't say that they would be surprised by what's going on. Uh, but mm. nonetheless, um, if this war drags on, I mean, they know that certain things might happen. Doesn't necessarily mean that uh, that they have the resources and they have uh, they have all the confidence to deal with it. It's just uh, it's just they probably have a plan for it. Uh, but it's but it but but it's probably very difficult. I mean, did did, did you guys read? <laughs> uh, so basically, the the I think the foreign minister or the the state councilor from China uh, was having a meeting with the. Was, who was he having a meeting with uh, Sullivan, the national security advisor, yesterday in Rome? And mm -hmm. uh, I haven't read the American account, but the Chinese account said that uh, they had a very intensive seven-hour discussion. So, so, so my take is that they basically called for seven hours. Yeah, I I, I saw some headlines from yeah. threads about that talk. Yeah, uh, from the Chinese perspective, they yeah. used headlines were using words like disrespect and you know talks only happen when you get respected. Mm. So I mean that's just a one narrative from the Chinese perspective of the supporters of China. Right? So uh, the the other side of course will say like oh the Chinese are argumentative or whatever. But yeah, it just uh, I think the the fact is it just wasn't productive, which is think, clear. So I think the fact is that. All these guys who are at the talks, who are leading the talks, are master players in geopolitics. And everything they do for the public is for the show. Yeah. yeah and, sure. and then people I mean, everyone knows what they want. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Yeah. Um, but, but interestingly, we have, um, I, I, I have been speaking with, uh, with people in China doing cross border e commerce. And uh, there's some interesting implications of the war. Um, so first, um, you know a company called AliExpress, which is owned by Alibaba. Mm -hmm. Do you know that their biggest yeah. market is Russia? Right <laughs> now, like currently or previously? Uh, it has always been the case. I'm not sure about right now, uh, but certainly things will be impacted a lot because uh, lots of sellers would refuse to, to to send goods into Russia. Really? Yeah, because that they, they, they don't know whether they can get the money back. Russians yeah, are, are, Russians are telling them yeah. that okay, it's ec economic. Okay. Russians are telling them that uh, they will be paying ruble, and uh, I don't think yeah. the Chinese sellers are willing to accept <laughs> the ruble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no, there's no. Yeah. That happened exactly. There's no foreign currency left in Russia. Almost like there was like when the war force broke out, like a week into it, the Russians basically the government made all companies basically liquidate their foreign currency reserves for rubles. <laughs> right yeah. which is kind of crazy yeah, you yeah, think yeah. about it it's like they took like oh they're like no like give us all your euros i want to give you rubles back right it's yeah. very yeah so so that's one implication so 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 i'm I'm not sure of how much um 
how much that we impact Alibaba's numbers. Uh, because, Ali, I mean, in their financial reporting, they bundle uh, Aliexpress together with Lazada and other businesses called it sort of international e-commerce mm. or something. So, yep, but, but no. by certainly, I think in this quarter, things will be impacted. The other thing is something that I didn't expect. Um, what I was told is that uh, Shopee's business in Poland is also impacted. Shopee's what? Shopee's business, business in, in Poland. In Poland, especially the cross-border part. Um, because the Polish currency has devalued quite a bit. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know how to pronounce mm -hmm. it, or whatever. It has, has, has devalued quite a bit. And, uh, and again, um, so, so whichever, whichever the sellers in China were selling, which were quite price, uh, competitive is not that com price competitive anymore. So, so there's some impact there as well. Mm -hmm. And, um, and Alex, you would know, uh, Tarora global fashion group, uh, biggest businesses in Russia. Yeah. La Moda and, uh, yeah, La Moda, yeah, it was very big. So, so it's interesting. I, I read their Q3 and Q4, uh, uh, earnings and, um, and, and basically I think, I think what they call CIS, right? Commonwealth of independent states would, would occupy like 30 to 35% of their total business. And they operate in four countries, Russia, Ukraine, Belarus, and Kazakhstan. And, uh, uh, that, well, <laughs> <laughs> and. Well, you know how that's going to end up for the next quarter for Ben. And, and they had one full page in the latest uh, earnings presentation, um, talking about the CIA situation. Uh, we, I think, I mean, they didn't read, really mention about numbers, but, uh, and, and all outlook because it's uh, incredibly difficult to, to, to give guidance on the current circumstances. But, but, but one thing they did, which I thought was probably right, is that they said our priority is to ensure that the employees which are operating in those markets, especially in Ukraine, are safe. I think any business will be, oh. be facing incredibly difficult decision, uh, decisions if they're operating in those countries. I mean, the question is how, how will the Russian economy continue to, to function? I mean, is, are they big enough internally to support? I mean, if, if, even if China is not at the point, they're not ready to transition, to be self-sufficient, to, you know, get away from globalization, uh, like Russia is probably even worse, worse off, you know, you'd, you'd think. So it, it feels like this is like not good, no matter what. I mean, I don't see how like any void could be filled. It's just like, it's like, you know, kind of like post-World War II, you know, Japanese economy and all these other economies starting from scratch. It seems like this is going to, if this drags on, it's going to go to zero, you know? No, I mean, it's, it's really bad. Like, you, like Russia is a petro state, right? Like they're like, I think like yeah. 39, 40% of their GDP is linked to like oil and gas essentially or energy. Yeah. Right. And then like the latest, yeah. uh, the latest, um, round of sanctions coming out of the u.s and out of the west is they're going to start sanctioning russian energy which is kind of wild like that yeah like it's crazy the, the, the one the one narrative you don't hear about is like how much that's going to affect western economies because we need that oil right like, we, we need you know, that oil most I mean, countries are importers of oil it's also like so i was saying like last week i think like the u.s still imports like eight, so the U.S. won't be as bad. The U.S. imports like eight yeah. percent of its natural gas, liquefied natural gas, from Russia. The the country that's really going to get hammered is Germany. I think like Russia accounts for like thirty percent of Germany's yeah. blended energy mix between like uh, natural gas, petroleum, and all that stuff. It's huge implications for Germany, right? Um, yeah. Especially because they also shut down all the nuclear power plants. I also, you know, what is really interesting? I read that like. A lot of these like environmental groups in Germany that were advocating for the abolition of nuclear power were actually funded by Russians. Oh my God, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Right? I, I believe that conspiracy. <laughs> no, it's not like it's just. Uh, anyway, so I think. So, 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 
So by the same logic, all, all those environmental groups in Taiwan are advocating for pollution nuclear energy is probably funded by China as well. Probably. <laughs> you know, well, probably. Yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. right? Um, all the money. I mean, I think there's going to be like, so there's a couple of things here, right? I think from like, like a macroeconomic point of view, this is obviously going to have, it's going to, I mean, inflationary. Right? Well, inflation is getting even worse now. Like the latest numbers out of the it's US, here, yeah. it's like 9%, which is like crazy. That's a crazy so Even in Malaysia, it's ticking up by a few percentage already. Yeah, even like in Malaysia. Southeast Asia started to feel it too. Yeah, yeah but, but you think about like 9% inflation in the US is like insane, especially because we're coming out of a period where it was basically zero for like 20 years, right? Yeah. So even if it doesn't have... So there's two ways to think about it, right? I think like there's one, there's like obviously the day-to-day -day life of like American people, right? And there's like a really interesting stat that came out. Did you know that like basically 60% of the American population lives paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, I, I've heard of that before. Yeah, right. It's, so if you think it's almost quite shocking, it's quite shocking, right? And, and and for these people, energy and gas are like a huge component of their their expenses. It could be like 20, 30 percent of their expenses, right? And so if you if you like increase energy costs by like another fifteen to twenty percent on top of what it where it already is, which is already expensive, then we get into a situation where a lot of households are going to have to start making some really difficult decisions. It's going to be like, oh. Do I drive or do I buy more food type of situation? Right. Yeah. And that's going yeah. to have like some serious implications, both for politically for the government, and also, you know, for the economy. Because if you think about it that way, like if people start staying back in, we're kind of going to go back to the COVID economy because if you're not going to drive, you're not going to go out to eat. Right. So we're going to kind of like do you, regress to certain do you extent. Think, do you think there's enough economic pressure from the small people feeling this to put pressure on the government to force a solution. You know, will, will the, the US and Europe feel forced to do this at some certain point in time, this continues? It feels like so. I mean, the US already is, right? The US is already like, yeah. they're, they're talking to like Iran and Venezuela to get them to pump more oil. Yeah. Like when you start talking to Iran and Venezuela, yeah, yeah. it's like, hey guys, pump more oil. That's, that's, that's when you know you're like kind of the, in, in the deep. The, the Saudis already agreed to it, right? When you're so. in the deep, uh, deep end of things, right? But I mean, the, point, the problem with yeah. all that is like from the reports that I read, all those sources of energy won't come online until like six months down the line, right? Even yeah. like the new US, like if they restarted fracking um, in the US today, it's not going to hit the markets until like six months later. So like we're looking at at least like a yeah. lead time of like eight to 12 months out. So yeah. I, I, I mean, uh, but then, the, so the, this is a real problem because, you know, before we were getting this, this situation where we had high inflation rates because of liquidity and then you know, some of the input costs were mm. too too high right yeah. but if we drive input costs even higher uh because of the energy prices going up we're going to start going into or it's likely that we'll see what we saw in the 70s which is stagflation yeah. right where basically companies just stop producing things right. because the cost of materials is just too high and they're like oh we can't make money on this so we're just not going to produce and then we're in real problems because then you, you need like a paul volcker to come in and raise interest rates like 20 percent Correct. To, to like basically Correct. to to break this thing and if you can you imagine like where a lot of the companies a lot of these like tech companies would be if they were like if interest rates were 20 percent, they would just be dead it would just be a yeah. it would be a wholesale massacre like they would all die well if you if you think about the the fed and their current u.s fed and their current policy it seems they just want to keep leaning into qe and pumping more money or at least having a soft stance which leans more into more stimulus if things get bad which then leads to the scenario you're talking about right so it's just 
it's like you said, some might have to swallow the hard pill and 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 do do the opposite, right? But it doesn't seem that that's happening anytime soon, you know. But this is exactly the problem with QE. Is like when QE when they yeah. like QE started during the recession during the two thousand eight recession, right? That's when they started doing all those like stimulus. And then yeah. the criticism of QE has always been: if you keep doing this, what are you going to do when shit really hits the fan, right? And now we're yeah. at the shit has really hit the fan level. Like you can't print any yeah. more money. Interest rates are already at zero. What are you going to do? You don't have any more levers to pull. I mean, yeah. you could, I guess you could print more money, but I mean, in, in that case, and then, but that leads to hyperinflation, exactly, right? So yeah. you're you're kind of like in the between like a rock and a hard place. And this has always been there. Yeah, it's always been the Christmas QE. And now it's kind of like the, the devil's, what's that phrase? Like the crows that come home to roost, basically? Yeah, yeah. I mean, my my take ever since like 2008 was like, I always had thought initially going through some short-term austerity, resetting systems and behaviors was good. Yeah. But, you know, everyone, was, everyone says, oh, no, you know, you, you don't have to feel the pain, just keep pumping money. And it seemed to work for a decade. Like that truth held for over a decade. Yeah. So. But, but like, I think you're, you're absolutely right. Like, you know, we kind of just kicked the can down the road and the, the real austerity will be coming with the right catalysts. And yeah, and it's going to be, you know, really that, that painful. could be potentially worse. Yeah, it's going to be yeah. really, really painful for a lot of people. Like, even for us, it's going to be painful. Like, we were joking about it, but I'm looking at my stock portfolio. It's brutal. Has it, Actually, has it not been painful? Yeah, it's like, so it's just, today's very sad day. Terrible. Episode. It's just yeah. like, I'm like, nope, bring it. Upset. You know, yeah. it, well, it, it, you know, in October last year, there are a few guys who, who, who asked me saying that, hey, I think the market has very high risk. We should all liquidate and hold cash. And last week yeah. I talked to, I think, four of them who, who gave me a, that advice in October. And I said, how are you guys doing? And three of them are saying that, oh, I'm bleeding. I said, I thought you, you wanted to, 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 to liquidate everything. <laughs> and he said, I mean, all three of them said, yeah, uh, so. I knew that was the right thing to do, but at that time, I just felt, I mean, it's just a very difficult uh, and, uh, decision to do, to, to, to basically liquidate everything and just hold cash. You probably need to go through a few cycles to, 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 to be able to have that guts to do yeah, it. True. But I mean, even if you're holding yeah. cash, your cash is worth 10% less now than it was like a few months ago. So that's true. Uh, it's much better than your stock portfolio for sure. No, that's true. My stock portfolio is really ugly. That's fair. Yeah. I think, you know, if we want to have deeper insights, we can invite our friend Dimitri on for the special episode where we get more insights into the Russian perspective, you know, like what, what is the actual social contract with the people on the Politburo? You know, what, what, how are Western ideals really embraced in there? You know, what is a, what is the extent of soft power? What does national, nationalistic pride actually look like? So I think that could actually fill in parts of the other puzzle that we don't really understand mm -hmm. as foreigners and also if some far away situation. And I hope it brings more nuance to it. But uh, since we're not doing that, maybe we should just move to the next topic, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think, that, I think having some, some perspective would be good uh, in a special episode because uh, because whatever that's happening, uh, although sort of, I mean, we live in Asia and uh, and the world's far away, but, uh, but, but all the economic, geopolitical consequences would impact and lots of things we do. Yeah. Yeah. For sure, for sure. All right, and part of this narrative does cross over into what we're seeing with Didi, right? The ride-hailing company from China. Uh, March 11th, last week, shares tumbled 44% on one day. Um, and that's Very crazy if you think about your just stock. Yeah, it's like almost having in a day. That's it's some wild stuff. Uh, basically, what happened is they, uh, Didi went ahead with a US listing the CAC, the Cyber Administration of China, was not happy with this. Uh, so they pulled, you know, the app from the Chinese app store. 
Uh, so they had planned to actually delist from US and they were supposed to list uh, very recently to the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, but they did not pass scrutiny again. So their proposals uh, and you know security measures and data leaks were not you know sufficient enough from the CAC's perspective. So they had to halt it, which caused this fall, right? So it, on, on one hand, you know there is a real fundamental driver here. I think you know um, you know them getting hit so hard, you know not being in the app store and being you know losing listings and stuff. But it's coming from regulatory scrutiny, right? So it's a very interesting story. And, and tied with that is the KWEB. Um, Jack, why don't you explain that for our foreign listeners who actually don't know what the KWEB is, or is it KWEB, or how do you say I, it? I, I, I think the foreign um, investors would know KWEB better than I do because um, because I, I usually, when I invest in Chinese tech, tech stocks, I, I invest in individual stocks, but uh, KWEB is uh, is ETF of uh, of Chinese high growth uh, tech stocks, and it has uh, yeah. has been going down tremendously. Um, but but across the board, you see all the tech stocks in China going down, and and that has yeah. been happening since uh, since pretty much February last year. So so, yeah. so I think February the nineteenth was was the highest point. They started going down, and uh, wave after wave. So every time people think that it's the bottom, something else hits. Right? I mean, the, the regulations, the crackdown, yeah. um, the the the, the 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 data security concerns, and uh, and and, and and, and but basically, and the SEC is the sort of a threat of, a threat of a potential listing Chinese tech stocks, uh, Chinese stocks, yeah. and uh, and and uh, yeah. So so basically, one thing after another. They, they, they yesterday the lockdown in Shenzhen, so and the potential lockdown in Shanghai. Yeah. So so it seems that uh, it's not wave after wave. I mean, people's confidence have has been really really hammered. Yeah. And if you look at Alibaba, well, I mean, now, yeah. now it's almost almost the IPO price in 2014. So yeah, which means exactly. that if you exactly. if you held Alibaba for uh, for seven and a half years, um, you would have made close to zero return. Well, that's you know that that leaves the question, right? So I, I mean, we on you know we we talked about this in previous episodes where this is just a continuation. On one hand, it's a continuation of Chinese crackdowns, and you know we we talked about the implications, you know, from an entrepreneurship ecosystem perspective to the actual valuations of these companies or people investing, right? Mm. Um, on DD, on the other hand, of course, there's real actual fundamental problems with the company because of this situation. They're, you know, they they revealed a $4.7 billion loss in revenue you know, in the last quarter, which is like a lot to lose. So, I mean, that's why they probably dropped more than other people. Uh, you know, so I guess, what do you guys think? This is, is, is this just, you know, a broad macro trend or there's, uh, there's actual substance for these guys who are, are pricing in really very far long-term uncertainty of surrounding, you know, regulation and the CAC in China. And what does that really mean from this point on then? I think, so, you know, the story behind the KWEB, right? It was, it was caused by five stocks, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. So the story, okay. So the story is basically the SEC is um, basically cracked. Like they're, they're enforcing this new measure where essentially they're requiring um, that they have the ability to review audit audited financials of these Chinese companies, which is actually impossible, as I understand, because as I understand it in Chinese law, they won't let foreign regulatory like any foreign bodies, regulatory bodies, like yeah. review these yeah. um these uh, uh companies' books. But I think what's really interesting is, do you know what the five companies are? Uh, obscure companies which nobody knows. No, not sure. Oh. 
So three of them are biotech companies. Okay. One of oh, them is a semiconductor parts or machine manufacturing company. And then the fifth one, you guys definitely know, it's Yum China. <laughs> oh, Yum. Oh, Yum. KFC. Yeah. So yum, yum China is the parent, is the company that operates like all the fast food restaurants in China, like KFC, Pizza Hut. Uh, they don't operate McDonald's, but basically all Yum the brands. Yeah, under Yum is, Brands. Yum Brands. Isn't that like right? partially owned by Alibaba or Jack Ma or something? That I don't remember. But I think it's so really indicative that these yeah. were the five companies that they chose to, to yeah. roll. Because theoretically, this, this new um, standard, uh, every single company on the KWEB is subject to it, I believe. So there's like a list of 200 some companies. And there's a lot of them that are not going to be in compliance or not going to be able to comply with this. But the fact that they chose these yeah. five, I think says something, right? So three or four of them are like core strategic industries or four of them belong to the core strategic industries that, you know, China has, you know, very clearly stated that they want to focus on in the next 20, 30 years. And the other one, is Yum Brands, which is kind of like a symbol of like American <laughs> culture and power in China. No, I'm, I'm serious. It's yeah. not a joke, right? It's true. So I yeah. think the way I look at this is it's almost, it's like a story of, it's, it's an indication of decoupling, right? So mm. for like many, 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 many years, right? The Chinese have kind of gotten the best of the both worlds, right? In the Chinese company, yeah. they get access to American liquidity, American capital, American capital markets they can raise from here. They can take American IP, right? And then on the flip side, they're like, oh, you know, you don't like, you can't own foreigners. You can't own our strategic assets here. There's certain industries that you can't own. Um, if you want to operate here, we're going to have to do an IP transfer. We have to give us all of your know-how, right? So it's been like very unfair or maybe fair is not the right way to look at it, but like it's been a very unbalanced relationship for many, many years. And I think with a lot of the recent geopolitical tensions with the supply chain, all these talks of decoupling. I think this is like a clear, I'm interpreting this as like a signal that the SEC is saying like, okay, fine, like let's decouple, let's do this. Like if you, if you guys want to play this game where you get all the benefits and we get none of the benefits, frankly speaking, then we're going to start cutting you off of American capital markets and you have to find your liquidity somewhere else. So I, I just did some, some search. Uh, so basically young brands, uh, uh, Yum China uh, received 460 million uh, investment from affiliated Alibaba Group, as well yeah. as uh, a private equity firm Primavera Capital. Um, the, the reason why I remember this episode it was because uh, there was a joke circling around uh, around that time, saying that uh, Jack Ma was having a meeting with his staff. He got really hungry, and he he told his secretary, "Go and buy KFC." <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> KFC came back saying that okay. <laughs> Here it is, 460 million, please sign. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good joke. It's a good joke. It is a good joke. But the, yeah, but, um, but I yeah, think ahead, the, the, um, the sentiment now is, uh, is very, very bad. I mean, I, I mean, the, the witch has cool, 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 I mean, something with the, um, pioneers, uh, basically large ticket bankers from China and everyone is, um, is under tremendous stress because nobody knows, uh, how this will end or when this will end. So, so there's, um. There's quite a bit of um, anxiety going on, so um, I, I think it's still too early to say whether that would uh, accelerate an exodus. Because uh, because even before that, I mean, um, people are, are, are complaining that it becomes increasingly difficult for U.S. dollar funds to invest in China because basically you can't exit. And even if you do exit, I mean, the valuation is shitty. 
So, yeah. so, so yeah. many of them are looking at investing in companies, um, outside China, but, uh, but they do realize that the companies in emerging markets are even more expensive compared to companies in China. So D Dave, can you also clarify or expand upon like, you, you're, you're thinking that this is maybe signaling for decoupling. Um, but you know, we, we've discussed before where China cannot completely also decouple from globalization. So, so how does that actually look like, right? So do they try to form their own blocks with the countries they fully invested in and try to force those to decouple with them? Because China cannot fully deglobalize. They're not ready at the point, right, for this. You know, that's is why they can afford war or this other thing. So what, what, what does that look like to you? Or what do you, how do you think that actually plays out uh, if they did want to start decoupling it? Is it even feasible? Well, just to clarify, the delisting of these five companies was initiated by the U.S. SEC, not the Chinese. Okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. So I just, just to be very clear, like, I don't think the, yeah, this is like American driven primarily. Okay. okay. Right. DD is a different story. DD is obviously that was a Chinese driven That's Chinese instance, yeah. okay. but these five companies is American driven. So I think this is a, like I said, I think this is a move oh, by the U S regular, like authorities saying that, okay, like, I don't think we're, oh, okay. I don't think we want to play this game anymore where we get very little benefit and you get a lot of benefits, right? I think that's what they're saying. So just, just well, clarify there. It's, yeah. I mean, like, it's, it's almost like America made a deal. I got to kept my words, I guess. America made a deal that they didn't understand, you know? Uh, like, they, because yep. they, they did get benefit. They got very cheap goods that everybody's been happy with for the past few decades, right? Like, they got it to consume. That's what everyone wants to consume. We got, you know, all that benefit that that's essentially a transfer of wealth right and that's what you know they that was the deal but i guess they didn't realize the implications that immense chipping away your power over time right yeah well i mean the analogy is like we we traded away the farm for like i don't know like like a couple of eggs essentially yeah like we all got like cheap flat screen tvs for, in a purchase yeah like we all we all we all got cheap TVs for a couple of years yeah <laughs> but then like the the trade-off is like we gave away all of our core ip Right. Yeah. And then correct. we hollowed out the American yeah, yeah, middle yeah. class. So I, that's not a good trade. Yeah, correct. Right. Yeah. I mean, they're realizing it now, but like, uh, but the, I mean, that means, yeah, this, this, I mean, if that's the policy stance, it means America has to really change policy and attitude where they have to start building things purposely, just can't be in this consumptive, you know, endless consumptive pattern. You know, you actually have to rebuild manufacturing with real high technology now because, you know, labor is too, too expensive yeah. and all these kind of things, but you know, but is, is America in a position to do that? You think? I mean, okay, let's be honest. I like full decoupling is a pipe dream, right? It's never going to happen. Yeah, I, think supply, I mean, we're just, yeah. if I'm being front here, like, I think, I think it's like, but at the same point, like I can, I, I can only speak to what I know and I, what I know is tech, right? If you think about yeah. it, the tech ecosystem has been decoupled for the last 30, not 30 years, 20 years, whenever the great firewall yeah. was first rolled out, right? It was just never really formalized yeah. or it wasn't necessarily not formalized. I, we should learn more carefully. Like most Americans just didn't know and or didn't care. Right. And I think yeah. that is what's changed substantially in the last two to three years, especially with COVID is like a lot of Americans care now. Like if you look at bipartisanship in the U.S., it's like at an all time high. It's basically they can't agree mm. on anything with there's. Literally, there is one thing that the, everyone can agree on, and that's foreign policy towards China. And everyone wants yeah, like a harsher that's true. foreign policy towards China. Whereas like four years ago, honestly, like you can say that a lot of things about Donald Trump, 
but he fundamentally changed the conversation around China. Yeah, right? And once he started he having, and once we started having that conversation, you, we can't put that genie back in the bottle again. It's too late. Yeah. Well, that's what Obama did very expertly. He kept it in the bottle. Yeah, well. Obama did a great so. job. Obama was like, oh, don't look here. You know, look here, right? But then like, Trump yeah, was like, no, correct. it's stupid. I mean, and it's a deal. And so, yeah. Don't you think this is in inevitable because, um, because I mean, in order, yeah, the copy, sure. the copy two poles, it just doesn't work. So, so, yeah. so, 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 so if China exists in a global trading order, challenge US situation, sooner or later, this will come about. And, um, and, and, and what, whether Trump well, did the right thing or not, I mean, sooner or later, this will happen because, um, because, because I mean, historically you, all, you never had like, I mean, two, two big countries sort of coexist, um, very peacefully. And I mean, you, you have situations where the three, five powers, no. but two, I mean, it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's very difficult. Well, that's, that leads to the point where it's very hard for these two different systems at odds with each other. Mm. And what happens is like, if China wants to exist in these two worlds, they have to either accident accidentally liberalize a lot of things, which has probably been happening. And they realize that leads to a loss of power, but them cracking down doesn't engender themselves to continuing a harmonious, you know, continuation of the two system policy, right? Like essentially like, you know, if they had just let DD list, it's kind of like a good win. You have a Chinese national hero that's very global, but at the same time they lose control in that, right? So they're stuck between these two things of. So essentially you end up clashing no matter what, like you said, right? So it's, I think it's, it's hard for like, you know, it, you end up, you know, these two things just can't, you know, last together. It's, it almost feels like it's going to have to get physical at some point, you know? I, I think, I mean, this, this is my thought. It's not like with any, anywhere, but, but, but I do think that if you look at a, a lot of the things that she did to, to essentially uh, makes the country a little bit more uh, dictatorial. And, uh, and reverse many of the liberal policies, uh, easy installed by his predecessors. Um, I do think that they took lots of inspiration about what happened in Russia. I mean, after the Soviet Union, Union uh, sure. uh, broke up, I, I, I think, I, I think the Russian leaders at that time, Boris Yeltsin, etc., they wanted to be in the Western order. They wanted to, to, yeah. to, to, to become liberal, but things went out of control. Yep. So. And, uh, I, I do think that the West didn't help Russia or Ukraine adequately back then. So, 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 so I, I think fair. because yeah. I think last three years, uh, I noticed in the news that a few sort of parties, party sort of, um, ideology meetings. And, uh, I think she mentioned a few times that we need to learn from the experience of the failure of the Soviet Union. So, 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 so I do think that, that, I mean, whether it's justified or not. That probably um, strengthened that that uh, the leadership in China's deep sus uh, suspicion about, I mean, liberalizing the, the society. Well, it seems to be going in a yeah, complete opposite direction. So, mm. I I don't know. Um, any any final comments on this topic, guys? Like, I don't. What so? D, what happens to Didi? I guess uh, can can they recover from this? Do they finally list? Uh, can they realize their valuation? Because the, well, actually, you know, I think uh, at the current valuation of the current listing, it's at 50 billion, if I'm not mistaken. Still? 48 I billion? I think it is about 10 billion now. If I'm... Yeah. 10 billion think, now? Yeah. It's about 10 billion. <laughs> it's, it's, if, you think about, if you think about that, it's lower than Grab, um, it's lower than Delivery Hero, it's about, it's, oh, it's yeah, about it's like one. 8.5 billion. It's about, 
it's yeah. about one third of uh, of uh, of a go to if go to managed list at this valuation yeah. of twenty yeah, nine. Yeah, come on, that, okay, we'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. We'll get there. I don't want. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I was yeah I was missing my notes. I was looking at the this the SEA C value. Oh. That, that's still around, hovering on 48, yeah, million. yeah. Sorry, my my brain's fried. Um, okay, let's. Uh, I don't know. Do we have time for one more topic? I guess right. Is, is, unless you really can grind it out. No, let's just bucket it all go into to... one thing. We'll just, we'll just bucket all into one. I think. Okay, fine. We're gonna bucket go to. Yeah, actually, no, they're kind of in a similar vein. Go to wants to IPO, uh, grab results and see results all combined. Uh, so for go to group, the new entity formed from Gojek and Tokopedia. They're set to raise 1.2 billion USD April 4th. They had a call today, Jangan, which I think you listened to, so you have some interesting insights there. Um, on the back of that, you know, we recently had the Grab and C results for their Q4. Uh, Grab reported a net loss of $1 billion. Um, you know, they, they're in a very tough position. Their stock is getting hammered, right? Uh, their annual loss was $3.4 billion. Uh, for C Group, they also had a lot of headwinds. You know, their their stock is getting hammered too. Uh, for for C Group, annual total gap revenue was ten billion dollars, um, but their gross profit was only three point nine billion. Uh, their losses, you know, if you dig into the notes, they lost about two billion. I think you know between GoTo, Grab, and C, they've all lost very close to each other in the two to three billion range of losses. So, um, so very very disappointing results reflected in stock prices across the board. Uh, interesting enough, GoTo only wants to raise 1.4 billion that burn rate. So I don't know what that means for them, uh, which is also a very existential, existential question for Grab because they have a very short runway. They keep burning at the same rate that they're doing too. So I don't know, what, what do you guys think? You want to talk about GoTo first, I guess? How painful that deck was to read? Yeah, I want to, I want to say one thing before we get into a serious conversation. Like that deck, has to be by far the worst prepared presentation I've ever seen. Truly, truly. Like it, it is, it is unbelievable how poorly structured from a storytelling point of view that deck was. There's no coherent. The fact that like it didn't even, it wasn't even readable in a lot of the times. There was like currency, the currency wasn't consistent. There wasn't like any explanation of like half the acronyms that were used there. Um, and it just, I, I, I truly can't believe someone paid like a bank, like millions of dollars or, you know, 2% of their IPO, whatever their fee was to create that deck. It was like, John Gon, I'm like actually upset at you that I had to read that stupid thing because of you, because you wanted to talk about it. So I just want to say that just to just putting that out there. It's crowd was very, you just did. So go ahead, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was very pleased to learn that Tokopedia's revenue was bigger GDP than China and U.S. combined. Yeah. So I was very surprised to that. Their deck. Their, 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 their 30 deck. something, it's like 38 trillion or something. I think that's in <laughs> USD. So. No, it said no. It was in USD. I'll pop up the screenshot on the deck that the, yeah. that oh, the Tokopedia revenue is like 38 trillion yeah. or something. Something ridiculous number. Yeah. It was yeah. We meant to say trillions of rupiah, but they labeled it as U.S. dollars. Oh wow! So oh, very wow. interesting deck. Um, so so yeah, yeah a lot of <laughs> lot of I don't know. But what was your take, Jangan? Have you read the the, the IPO prospectus? It's nine hundred and sixty seven pages. Oh my god, pages! Wow, pages. 
the, the, the visual on no. the cover is amazing. It's amazing as usual. And, uh, but, uh, but now I had a 60 page, I mean, I managed to read about five pages because it was all, it's all in Bahasa and, uh, they, 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 they became a bit too much. That said, um, this morning at post day today is the 15th, uh, 15th of March this morning. Um, so they had this, uh, uh, due diligence and uh, public expose uh, meeting uh, in Jakarta, which is broadcast live on on YouTube. Um, uh, so so I watched half of that. It's tremendously, hilariously entertaining. So it showcased like I think five or six different dances from 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 from. I, I don't think they're traditional dances. They're, they're basically reinterpreted dances. Everyone's wearing green and it's all very lively. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I, I enjoyed the show. And, um, and uh, there was a session of uh, chanting Indonesian uh, uh, national anthem, which I think was, 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 was fantastic. Uh, I, 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 I turned off uh, when they started talking about business numbers. So, so I, 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 I'm not sure what exactly they talked about, but, uh, but, but, but the show was very nice. I mean, it was, it was it was truly really enjoyable. Yeah, like a they had a variety show during their like investor presentation. What I don't understand. Like, is this like yeah, a thing in like, Indonesia yeah. where they just comment? Yeah, like, joke aside, yeah. did he do this? Is this expected or what? I think I think it's expected. Um, I've, I've been to a few uh, Indonesian government um um uh, so sessions that they always proceed yeah. with uh, with some kind of performance. Uh, right. same as if you go to oh, a serious, wow. e- serious Indian government, um, uh, event, they were always like the land yeah. at the beginning. So, 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 I, so, so, sure. so oh, okay. I, I think that, I think, I think that's actually cool. Kind of like it. Um, but the, but of course the, the uh, when it comes to the business, um, 28.9 billion valuation. That's like, wow. Well, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Just to, just to, just to elaborate on that just a little bit, right? So I actually did spend like an hour and a half reading stack. And again, that's like okay. the most, the most painful experience I've had in a long time. Um, I, I feel like Russian novels are easier to read than that deck. Um, <laughs> so in I Russian. At, so if you actually look into their valuation matrix and how they got to an implied or impugned valuation of uh, whatever they were asking for. Right. They basically, what they did was they did the, uh, the framework is, is sound comparables, right. Is, is they, they took yeah. comparables of similar, um, companies within the three different sectors that they operate in. So like e-commerce mobility and, um, financial services, right. They did a comp, they did their GMV, a revenue multiple or a GMV multiple on the comparables. And then they came out with an implied valuation for each of the sectors, they added the sectors together. And that's how they got that number. What they didn't really you have to dig a little bit into the deck to find what they did but when they did the comparables they basically treated all comparables and they weighted them equally right so what that means is basically within like the fintech space right they had like comparables such as e-commerce enablers like a like a shopify which gets like a 30x multiple versus like a payments processing company which gets like maybe like a two to three x multiple and when they average them out they use they weighted them all the same so there's no like uh there's no adjustment for like market side or market cap or like you know sector they just treated them all the same yeah. and then they basically took a like, straight line average and use that to calculate what their appropriate um appropriate uh comparable valuation valuation mobile is which i thought was just kind of like you know 
if I ask like a high schooler to prepare a presentation, that is probably the framework that they would have used. What is more interesting though, is I think, um, I think they're going to be really, really disappointed with their offering. I think they really missed the boat. They waited way too long to get this to market. Like with the current macro environment out there, yeah, you're going to wait yeah, nowhere later. So like Bukalapak is kind of like, I think a good proxy for this, right? So Bukalapak IPO last year, it was about a year ago, actually, I think, right? Uh, and I think the GMVs are roughly similar. I think Bukalapak at the time was doing like maybe 30 billion in GMV, which I think is comparable to go to. Um, right now, Bukalapak, do you care to guess what their GMV to valuation or valuation to GMV multiple is? Uh, well, they, mean, they were marked you, to market over a year. It must be you, very you close had, to their, their actual GMV. At the IPO or now? Because it's done for like now, three quarters. Now, at the current, at the current, at the current today, like yesterday, no whatever, whatever day. Yeah. It's X. Okay. Just, it's, it's. 0.08. They're true. Yeah, low one. Point wow. zero eight to, no, 0 0.08. So, oh, 0 .08. 0 0.08. So, Bukalapak is currently worth, I think, like $4 billion or something like that, or $3 billion USD. And the GMV is like $25, $30 billion. Wow. No, GMV can't be that high, right? I, I, no, it can't be that uh, high. I just, well, here, I just, um, yeah, let me uh Bukalapak. You can I can send you guys a link later, but it uh yeah. that's what they said. Bukalapak's worth roughly like two to three billion, and then their GMV is around like thirty billion. So it's point like it's what's the discrepancy, do you think? How can Bukalapak GMV be thirty billion? I mean I... here, mm -hmm. let me send you guys a link. It's uh okay. the edge markets, right? So it's oh, market value. Yeah, the edge market. So their market value as of January eighteenth. It's 2.6 billion US dollars, right? And then Bukalapak's 2021 GMV. Let me find out. Bukalapak 2021. Should, be, should not be too much from, from, from 3 or 4 billion. I can't find it at this moment. But I, anyway, it, it doesn't actually change my fundamental point is I think like at this, I mean, fine. Let's not look at Bukalapak, right? Let's just look at Grab. Grab IP at $40 billion, give or take, right? Now they're sitting at 11, uh, which is, Honestly, I think that's only like two or three billion more than the cash they have on hand at the bank. I think they have like uh, nine yeah. billion dollars in the bank, and about then five billion so more because uh, because because they still have two billion debt. Remember that? Oh, right. Oh wow. Right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And then like same yeah. like Shopee at its peak last year was like two hundred and twenty two hundred fifty billion dollars, and now it's sitting at like fifty. So I think like yeah. I, I mean it, it fine. It, Bukalapak, the number is notwithstanding. Like the actual details, notwithstanding. I think these guys are going to really be in trouble. And I think, like I said, they've just totally missed their window on this one. It's just like with, I mean, we just talked about it, right? With the current environment, with interest rates, with inflation. I mean, all the growth stocks, all of these non profitable growth companies are like down 80% from their highs. Mm. I mean, there's like no way they're going to get 40 billion. Or, or thirty billion uh, valuation. That is, valuation. I, it's a pipe yeah. dream. It's never going to happen. I would, I would bet money on that. April, yeah, they're supposed to do list in April, right? April first, right? Is that a joke? I can't tell. Yeah, <laughs> April fourth. Oh, April fourth. April fourth. Okay. Okay. April fourth. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. the target date. Yeah. I mean, who would be buying into the IPO? I mean, it, well, is, is the, the government buying into this? Yeah. So, <laughs> so I mean, I maybe. The, 
Go ahead. I, I spoke with a few institutions last night and, uh, and, uh, I mean, the results I got was pretty unanimous. No, not going to fork any money for that. No, not going to fork any money for that. Uh, but people, people suspect that, uh, that I think, um, just like, uh, some of the SOEs in Indonesia have invested in, in Bukhalapa before, I, I think, I think there might be some in Indonesia oh, corporate yeah. SOEs, retail investors who, who are going to buy into that. But, but, but regardless, like 1.25 billion in IDX, uh, uh I, I don't know. Let's see, let's see, let's see what happens. Um, I would think that, uh, it's, it's, it's really brave for them to, 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 to look at this valuation target and, um, yeah, it's, uh, I don't know, just. Well, especially in light of everything we've been seeing with Grab and whatnot, right? And also the whole macro change. So, yeah. Um, hey, I, mean, I think, I mean, in general, yeah, I think this narrative is a joke. Oh, sorry. Like, okay. I, I mean, like to, to be a little bit more serious and bring this conversation more serious. Like, I think like I've, I've been saying this for the last year, I feel like, so I, I sometimes I feel like I'm talking to myself or I just keep, you know, that scene in Zoolander where it's like just one look and keeps doing the same thing over and over again. And I feel like this is like these three companies all kind of like roughly fit into the same bucket for me is like, they're all trying to like create this narrative that they're a super app and their assets all, uh, sort of like, you know, have some sort of synergy together. Uh, and then that they're investing. That's always the key word that they always use that they're investing in growth. Okay. So I think this is like a really interesting analogy, right? So let's look at like Amazon, which for years was like the poster child of a law of a company that was investing loss making, loss making investing to for future growth and that actually panned out okay so let's have so let's let's look into that so out of curiosity what do you guys think was amazon's uh total losses in its first 17 quarters as a public company remember this is during dot-com crash too so th this this includes dot-com crash I, I mean, I know the answer because we talked about it earlier. So, oh, do you know the I'll answer? Jang guest. Yeah, what's your guess, Jang? Yeah, we, we, we talked about it. Yeah, what's your guess, Gan Jang? No idea. 25 million? Million? No, come on. I don't come on, be, be serious. 25 million? Like, come on. No, I losses. I don't, I don't have any, losses, I don't have any benchmark, so I, so I don't know. Okay, fine. Come on. So, in its first 17 quarters as a public company, Amazon lost a total of $2.8 billion. In its history as a company, Amazon has lost $3.1 billion in its entirety, right? So these companies have lost in like one year what Amazon has lost like in its history of How many quarters of this? Yeah. I mean, yeah. since it's been a company, since like 1994 yeah. when they first started, right? Which is like, no, it, that's just, and then also you have to think about, there's also a, another finer delineation that we have to make here, right? So you have to think about the timing in these companies' life cycles during their IPO phase, right? So Amazon was founded in 1994 and he IPO'd in 1997. So that's actually quite, it, that means the IPO at a roughly young, at a quite, quite a young phase yeah. in its life, right? So theoretically, and so during that time, right? So I'm, I'm just read you uh, a little excerpt here. So uh, during or drilling into the quarter of results report at the time of his IPO, Amazon's revenue grew, or Amazon grew its revenue from 4.2 million in Q3 1996 to 8.5 million in Q4 1996. Its net losses fell over the same period from 2.4 to 2.3 million, right? So what that's saying is, 
even during the early phase of Amazon's life cycle, its revenue growth was accelerating while its net loss was decelerating. Whereas with a lot of these companies, you see the opposite dynamic. You see both revenue growth. They're not actually accelerating that fast, right? Like Grab only grew like 30% year over year or something, but their losses are accelerating, right? And these are companies that are much later in their life cycle than Amazon was at the time. This was like, like that quote that I read was like from four years into Amazon's life period. Like Grab at this point is like, yeah. what is it? It's like a 10, eight, 10 years old or something like that. 10 years. Right. And then last year, last year, like between 2020 and 2021, their losses grew by like over a hundred percent. Whereas like their revenue only grew by, I want to say it was like 50, like 20% or 30%. Right. So these yeah, are close to 30. Yeah. So, I mean, just in same, same can be applied for, for, um, go to, I think Shopee, this is less applicable to because Shopee has like an actual business that generates cash. So it obfuscates this a little bit but in general right i just i I feel like yeah i just think these like i keep i don't understand why the, the people that are, are that are so bullish on this company at times i don't really understand it because i just feel like they're kind of going to this blinders on it just doesn't make sense to me how some of these just oh. i mean now we're getting closer to like probably what i would say are realistic valuations but like seven eight months ago it was just crazy i just you know, it made no sense at all to me. So I think we're finally seeing a bit of a return to reality here for some of these people. So, um, so, so Dimitri's uh, Central Ventures and and us, we have been doing some assessments about uh, about the evolution of investment in Southeast Asia. And uh, at the end of last year, in December, we did um, a, a study benchmarking Southeast Asia compared to Latin America. So. So one thing you realize, which is interesting is that, uh, I mean, in Southeast Asia in 2016, 2017, you have these companies grow to be uh, huge companies because there's large funding became, large funding became available. And, and at that time yeah. you did, you, you didn't see the same dynamics in, uh, in Latin America. You didn't have, I mean, like no billion dollar rounds, I mean, $500 million yeah, rounds. Not yet. So, so, so if, if you look at now, I mean, I mean, it's all the, some of the companies from Latin America, which went, went, went listed in the US, Donco, Diloco, et cetera, et cetera, they are, I mean, they have, have never received that much investment. And in Southeast Asia, it's just, um, I mean, let, let stage capital become available very early. And uh, there were people, I mean, SoftBank, et cetera, et cetera, which were willing to bet a very, very big money into the market. Uh, and uh, I think that was also a time where tech in China was quite bullish about the expansion. So many of the, uh, the Alibaba's and the JD and Tencent, they participated in some of these large investment rounds. So, 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 so everything, everything together created this bubble. And, uh, and, 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 and now the question is that, I mean, how, 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 how it is going to take shape? So I do think that these three companies, I'm not sure about go to, uh, I think Grab and, 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 and C, they are at good positions because Grab has lots of cash, has more cash than C and, and did they? Net cash. Yeah, not at, they're, not they're, at the rate they're going. They're relative, <laughs> relative to the burn we're talking about here. Do they have yeah, a lot of cash relative to their burn? I mean, burn is something that you can control, right? So, so, so that, that, that depends on the gut no, of, it, of, 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 of the like <laughs> No, I, no, I think so. I, I think they, they, they well, have. I th okay. I think if they accept a more realistic valuation, then yes. And then you could survive longer and try to figure a way to come up with money. But if they do this hodgepodge of trying to acquire really, really big assets, like their giant grocer 
which I, you know, looking at the numbers was huge, you know, it's profitable. You, you, you spend money into asset, which is generating profit. Why not? Yeah, but that's, I, I, I don't know, Jangan. I don't buy, I don't, I don't buy that argument actually. That doesn't, that doesn't that, grow value. That's, I mean, over if you're, if, you okay, that, that, that's my, my contention with that argument is because then you're thinking as a capital allocator, right? And like to pay a billion dollars or sorry, ringgit, it was billion ringgit. I remember for 1.8 ringgit. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Uh, for Jaya Grocer, whose profit, their after tax profit was like, 67 million ringgit that doesn't make sense like why would you that that that's an obscene price right it's so it's almost like a if, yolo course the delivery vertical right i mean like you if you if you want to make an argument like if we could we could make an argument they could make an argument right and we talked about this that this is sort of like a test bed for the, um yeah for for deliveries and etc 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 and then the analogy is always the Amazon acquisition of Whole Foods, right? But then but, at the time I said that analogy doesn't, doesn't stand up because, you know, Amazon's acquisition of Whole Foods was free, essentially, right? The way that the market treated that acquisition is that market cap of Amazon increased by more than the 14 <laughs> billion that they spent to acquire Whole yeah. Foods. Whereas in this yeah, case, yeah, I yeah. think their market cap actually went down after they announced yeah, the announced the Jaya Grocer yeah, acquisition, right? So that's one. Two, uh, if they're doing this as like an MVP, why would they do it in Malaysia of all places? Why not do it in a market that actually matters to them, like Indonesia, right? And three, again, it's a capital. If you're thinking about this as capital allocators, like that argument that it's a profitable company, yes, it is. It is profitable, of course, but you know, to spend 1.8 million billion to acquire 67 million of profit doesn't, you know, you you get fired for that kind of thing if you work in a bank or something, right? What's the <laughs> what's the top line of Jaguar? Sorry. What's the top line of uh, Jared Grosser? Uh, I need to check. Hold on. I'm, I got to, I mean, let me look into if the top line is added to, 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 to the group top line. And, uh, if the valuation multiple PS or PGMV per se, it makes sense. I mean, it's, I don't think it's the way it makes sense for me. It doesn't disclose in this article because uh, I need to, I need to find it for you. Uh, let me, let me, you guys talk. I'll see if I can find it because. Okay. Because at the end of the day, I mean, when it acquires the company, the company is no longer valued uh, as of an offline retailer, right? I mean, whatever numbers they have yeah. top line, bottom line will be added to Grab's numbers. And I, I'm sure whichever metric you look at, I mean, the multiples will be better than if Jaguars stayed standalone. So, so I, I, I think the question is that, I mean, what can Grab do with 10, was that 10 billion or 8 billion, whatever, whatever amount of cash yeah. they have at hand. So. They can either invest in the, the organic growth of their business, they can invest in new business areas, or they can allocate the capital and, and make acquisitions. Um, looking at the situation now, I would think that acquisition for them makes lots of sense. The, the problem is it, that, I mean, how do you yeah. make smart acquisitions? No, exactly. And well, um, they, they have a few verticals that they have to make acquisitions in, right? Which is the, the main pillars that they focus on, which is of course. Uh, delivery of groceries, uh, ride share and financial, financial, right. But like, mm. so they already made their, their big grocery delivery one. I don't know how that's going to work regionally for them, mm. how that's going to roll out. Cause they'd have to make the same acquisitions over and over again for every country they're in. But then say the other verticals, are there even enough deals in the market, mature enough companies that would be very additive, like a giant grocer, right. Or say. Rideshare. Now, Rideshare has finally, revenue has finally returned back to 2020 levels. But the question is, they had this big story on Rideshare being a huge driver engine of growth, which I don't 
I don't see how, you know, unless, you know, you I, just instantly get so many more drivers on the road by the next year and more people wanting to I don't, have transportation problems, right? It's just going to be very incremental economic growth. I, I don't think red redheading is, is never meant to be a driver for growth. And if you look, even if you look at their target for EBITDA margin is pretty modest and, uh, and, and, and many of the investors I, I, I spoke to actually casting doubts about whether they can hit this 12% because, uh, because I mean, it, it is a sensitive topic and uh, in many countries it's high, it's, it, it's, it's regulated, it's watched and they can't raise the prices at, uh, as they wish. So, but, but they have significant market share, which means that, I mean, this part is supposed to yeah, generate yeah. profit for them. So it will probably be what? a smaller profit center for them as compared to, to the lending business as well as the gaming business of C, but, uh, but, but I don't see, I don't see any way this could be a growth engine. Yeah, no, but I mean, just, it's the way that we were reading the decks a few episodes, episodes mm. ago, you know, the way mm. they project and the forecast, the revenue of rideshare, it seems like that's going to be a big contributor cash cow for them, but clearly yeah, I, I agree. It's, I think realistic, everyone knows, doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. You can see the numbers coming in every quarter now. Right. So, mm. um, but it's, I, think, I don't know, it's, 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 they have very few bets to make, man. They have to make them very carefully. Like how do you materialize 40 billion in value within with that much cash in a few years, that's very scary. Your market has to be very mature. I mean, you're trying to justify a valuation of Uber in Southeast Asia, which is so economically very far behind. We're talking most countries are still middle inc income or even lower, right? So it's, it's tough, man. It's tough. I don't, I don't think they oh. should. I mean, honestly, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. If I were them, I wouldn't even worry about trying to justify the valuation at this point. I would just worry about like actually yeah, exactly. finding finding a business model that makes money so they are actually viable as a business. Cause I've, I've seen this so many times and we all have, right. We've all worked for yep. rocket company, right. Yep. We've all raised, I mean, obviously not to this scale, this is above and beyond, but we've yeah, all raised huge quantums of money and we've spent it all in like one year, one and a half years, two years. And then what, what always ends up happening is you always have to go through these rounds after rounds of painful cuts where you have to fire first 20%, yeah. then 20% more than 30% of your workforce. Um, and it's like a death by a thousand cuts. Right. And yeah. I think that's like, there, honestly, if I were these guys, right, I would just really like really get I your house in order and figure out like yeah. what, yeah, correct. what to build something sustainable. Cause this is not sustainable at all. So I think that that is the silver lining is that if, you know, if they keep getting marked to market, they realize that they have to make, like they have a big enough market share where there is an implicit valuation that makes sense and that they just have to make that sustainable. If they could focus on that, then, then I think you have a very good story and a good base where you're not going on these death raises anymore. And then, you know, then as long as you can sustain in where you are currently and, you know, it's, it's for sure, it could be in the billions for sure, right? But it's just, they have to prove that at this point. So I think there is a silver lining if they could find that bottom and build up that, and they'll build around that value. So I don't know if they're chasing the different game. Yeah. Uh, Groupon, no, yeah, Groupon's still only a billion. And, no, uh, I mean, it could, be, cap, it, could right? be, it could be like Groupon, you know, Groupon, you know, has very similar, like, you know, the same, yeah. same narrative, fastest growing company, super, you know, growth opportunity, blah, 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 IPO to like, I think Groupon IPO like a 20 billion or something like that. And like, it's, I mean, and it never made any money, right? It never made money. And, and today it's worth less than a billion dollars. It's worth like 800 million or something like that. Yeah. I mean, a little bit different, I guess. They're, they have different, well, they went global. I don't know if like Groupon ever had a narrative of expanding beyond group buying e-commerce. I, mean, I wasn't too sure about that, but yeah. I mean, you're right. There, there is some parallel, I guess. 
Yeah. Sorry, it's their Groupon is now worth five hundred million dollars, and at one point it was oh, that, worth, wow, that dropped very wait, far. What's before? The, like last year, I was checking, it was like a billion. Are they making a profit? Are they making a profit? No, but same, they never made a profit. No, right? they're, they're no. still not making a yeah, profit. Yeah, so you're right. No, they, they had quarters for. I mean, yeah, they had quarters where they're profitable. I'm sure, but like overall, it was just losing money recently. That's why it keeps dropping in valuation. Yeah, exactly. Cap. But, but, um, but, but. But, but I do think for all these businesses, right, you, you start with a simple narrative that, okay, I'm going to build something, uh, and, and because of the hardware I choose, because the product I choose, um, it's going to be fast growing. So, 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 and, and if it's fueled by capital, fueled by simplicity, simplicity of the product or business model that they have chosen, that fast growth is, is, is possible. And, uh, the question is that once they reach a certain stage where um, where it's just simple, a uh, simple growth. It's not as fast as, uh, um, uh, it is, it, it's not going to be possible anymore. And, uh, and they need to find yeah. ways to, to start making money and, uh, and, and the founders and yeah. teams and even the investors need to make that transition. And, uh, and what we see is yeah, that correct. many companies fail to make that transition. They just don't know how to make money. Yeah. I think that's, fair. I think they're at point. that point right now. Yeah. Yeah. They're at that point now. And I think a big difference where like in China, like you see this happening, but they actually transition very well. You know, they, they find very big markets and you know, where they start initially is not where they end up, where they make more, making more money. Right. So, but we haven't seen that yet in Southeast Asia and you know, it's very different economics. It's very different game, different, different countries, cultures, everything. Right. So, um, did you, it's a very tough time and I think they have to prove it, you know, uh, did you, do you guys see the news today that, uh, uh, Credible thing, Excel has dropped their um, their spec listing plans. Which so they're returning money? It's support. I mean, uh, so 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 I think they dropped the plan for a merger. I've I've spoken with a few friends who were sort of discussing with them about the uh, about their um their pipe round, and uh, I think that round took yeah. a long time. It was never closed. So so it's uh, mm. I, I think uh, Credible, right? Yeah. Oh, Cordivo from Indonesia. Okay. For Indonesia, Indian founders, uh, I think pretty good product. Um, I, I think it's just the economics. Um, so, so basically they, they do final pilot in Indonesia and, uh, they're yeah. like the others, they've also invested in banks, etc. Um, but, but I think the challenge is that, um, um, it's, you just don't see how this business model becomes viable over the long, long term. And I mean, unless it's get, it gets acquired by others yeah. or it Builds itself a comprehensive financial subscribe or digital ecosystem, whatever you call it. But but that that prospect is extremely difficult because you have you're fighting against the big guys. You're fighting against with the traditional banks, Indonesia, some of the private ones, even some of the government ones are not bad, frankly. And these guys have acquired yeah. licenses in the Philippines, in Vietnam, and in uh, in Thailand, and and uh, in their pipe run uh, fundraising, they told the whole world that okay, this is all my time. But, 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 well, no, right. I mean, building that business in Vietnam and Thailand, <laughs> I mean, Philippines, I can't, I can't understand Thailand. I mean, you go and fight against, I don't know, SCB and K-Bank. Well, those guys are really well entrenched. Yeah. Very hard. Guys, um, let's, let's all say one positive thing about each company. We are, <laughs> I can't, let's, let's say something bullish. You have to dig deep. Where's, what's the Andrew angle here or the Andrew G angle. If you hire, um, go to. Please fire bankers and hire me. I will make you a much better deck and I will raise you. I will add 10% to whatever market cap that you get because your deck will be that much better because the current one is the dumb piece of dog <laughs> shit. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. 
<laughs> okay, coming in very positive, Dave. <laughs> uh, I'm not gonna. I refuse. I'm not gonna. Well, the, the one positive thing about about uh, Grab is that the valuation is somewhat closer to reality. I'd say so. So I think. I think about Grab is the cash they have is the is the new CEO they have hired. Uh, uh, Wait, Grab is a new CEO. What COO? The oh, guy COO. who used to oh. the guy who used to be C, CEO of uh, HSBC Singapore many years ago, a guy called Alex Hungert. And um, so I know a couple of friends who used to work with him at HSBC, and they said this guy is is, is brutal, um, brutal in the sense that he knows how to execute. He knows how to fire people. He knows how to rationalize uh, the finances. So, so of course, I mean, yeah, I think, but... I, th I, th I think there are I mean, there are hopes of all team, and uh, I do think the Grab shareholders know that, uh, that 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 there are things which need to be done. But let's just see with the cash they have, with this executive leadership, and uh, with the guy. Sorry, let's not say bad things about anyone, but with uh, with uh, potentially a new guy to run digital financial services, and. Uh, and, and, and hopefully they can get, get something out of it. I, I, I'm still, I'm still bullish about Shopee and, um, I know their, um, their, their lending business is, 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 uh, it's, it's, it's churning out a growth. lot of profit, a lot of profit, a lot of profit. Growth, yeah. Mm. yeah. Growth was so, really big. So, so, and they investment in Shopee Express and all these capabilities. And I think at least on the right track, but, uh, but they're raising against time. So, 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 so they need to build yeah. all these things. And turn this phase into the tech rate they get from the from the merchants, so so that yeah. they can satisfy the capital market. Well, out of the three, they have the most clear narrative and the most cohesive vision between all of their synergies, which is what they say, you know, content, community, and commerce. Right, Shopee being the commerce content, their gaming, entertainment, which is that you know they have some headwinds. They admit it, and then the last piece, of course, is you know the the community part, which you know, which is the retention piece for all these things once they have the synergies built. Right, so. I think, you know, they, they have been making really good bets, uh, from, from, you know, C perspective. I think that it's, you know, short term seems tough right now, but, you know, I think they're I in think, a good position to, you know, if, I, I think it's also good but, for them to, for them to be humbled a little bit, uh, I re yeah. re remember something we mentioned in the previous episode and the way they were raising this, um, uh, the 6 billion, is that 6 billion? Six yeah. billion round um, yeah. in September last year, yeah. they told the investors uh, basically along the lines of uh, the time so big, our oh, yeah. is so weak. We know how to execute better than you do. Why don't you give us the cash? I think I think now they probably have been humbled, which 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 I think is a good thing. Well, they'll spin the narrative later when they re when they recapture saying it was our insight and you know we knew we needed this money and this for this purpose and this strategy. Uh, so. But that's yeah. a good thing. They never, they, they never, they never tell people other than uh, a close cohort of investors any narrative. You don't see them say anything, which is probably a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so Dave's going to be shorting all these talks, apparently. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. No, not, not, not Shopee. I, mean, I think Shopee. Shopee yeah, or C, I think also, I agree, John God, actually, I think C has like, some actual yeah, fundamentals there that are quite strong, yeah. but for the, uh, and, and go to, I don't even know how to do it because it's Indonesian or grab. No. Do you know, do, do you know a friend of mine who runs a, uh, a equity research firm in, in Hong Kong called Blue Lotus? He published a coverage report for Graph two months ago and, uh, and he put a price target of $3. And as yeah. of yesterday, wow. well, he, well, he hit the nail on the head, man. And, yeah. and, I, and I was asking, hey, 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 man, you got it right. He said, no, it doesn't count because the market sentiment is bad. I, I want the market to genuinely show that the value is. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, he wanted to be a bull market, but it's a tank. Well, yeah, yeah, a yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway. yeah. So hopefully, uh, I think we can close out here, right? I think we've probably covered enough. Um, yeah. I don't know. Anything on a personal note? Everyone okay otherwise, personally? N- no, I'm uh, obviously good. very aggravated by, by all these topics today. So I want to just bow out. I'm done. You know, <laughs> I don't want to be more aggressive <laughs> yeah, yeah. than I already have been. Dang. Uh, We'll miss Andrew's positive moves. Yeah, yeah get Andrew need, back need, here. Yeah, Andrew. Well, he's he's coming back to Malaysia apparently. So, but oh. you know, we'll see if it happens. He's he, he's getting deported from Mexico. <laughs> apparently, apparently yeah, he's going to go to so. London. I guess so. London's yeah. going to deport him, and they'll end up back in Malaysia somehow. Yeah. Send him to Ukraine. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe we can all organize a trip to Singapore then. So. Yeah, yeah you should. Why not? I mean, the borders are open and. Uh, Today, <sighs> my team, my team had been advocating to me saying that, hey, uh, Singapore Bali is open. How about we all go to Bali and work there for a few weeks, and uh, they're going to pay for their own flights and stuff. Wow, are you gonna do it, boss? Yeah, you're gonna do it. Maybe. I'm, I'm really tempted to 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 get out for a while. I'll come yeah. join you if you go to Bali. Let me know. Yeah, I don't blame yeah, you. Cool. I need to run. Uh, I have a, a call with someone in Brazil. Okay. Bye guys. Yeah. Good talking Bye to guys. you. Bye guys. Yeah. Ciao. Sleep well. <laughs>